Thanks for joining us for our podcast, Putting It Together. My name is Christina Clayton, one of the co-directors of the Northwest Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. We are part of a national network to disseminate and implement evidence-based practices for mental health into the field. We are coming to you from Seattle, Washington, and our Northwest region covers Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. However, in this virtual world, we have connected with people from all over, and we are very grateful to connect with you today. One of our goals is to provide free training and technical assistance in mental health topics. And now we are offering a podcast because we were told there weren't many podcasts out these days. Just kidding. But truly, we hope you hear some useful information and or inspiration that helps you put it together when working in this challenging and amazing field we call mental health. You can find out more about us, including our live event calendar, free online courses, resource library, and newsletter sign up by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. September is Suicide Prevention Month, and we have all been affected by suicide as a member of society, as a child, a parent, a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor. If you work in the mental health field or are working directly with those experiencing suicidal crises, this stress is additionally compounded. We can all play a role in supporting those experiencing a suicidal crisis or those bereaved by suicide. There are staggering numbers to consider. What can we do? We can learn about effective suicide prevention learning the signs, and listening to those with lived experience. We can ask the tough questions, be there, and know how to help. We can learn how to keep people safe and follow up. We can practice self-care, reaching out for help for ourselves, and spreading the word. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Kate Comtois, a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Washington. She is the director of the Center for Suicide Prevention and Recovery, or CSPAR. Their mission and her career goal is to promote the recovery of suicidal individuals and the effectiveness and well-being of the clinicians and families who care for them. She has been working in the area of health services, treatment development, and clinical trials research to prevent suicide for over 20 years. We hope this inspires and educates you to put together a new way of thinking about suicide care, caring for your loved ones, and caring for yourself in the field. Thank you for listening. I really wanted to start out and say that I appreciate the term of suicide care, um, and that that really encompasses so many aspects of this field and arena, because I think even just using the right terms uh, for what we mean to do and what our work really encompasses, uh, how did that framework kind of come together for you? Yeah, so this is something I think that, that um, you know, it's pretty well laid out in this suicide and systems framework that was developed by the Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And, and so like, I don't want to take credit for it. I mean, that, that was there. I think the idea of calling it suicide care is something that Jeff Sung and I have really more and more emphasized that, um, that we do think that, that this is a, you know, we talk about depression care, we talk about trauma care, that this is an area in which we need to provide care. And I also like it because it kind of gets you thinking about the treatment end of it more and, and a little less off of the kind of risk manage, like there's a kind of revolving door that I see people get into. They risk assess, they're coming up with a safety plan. Can you stay safe tonight? Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And they 
the client and the clinician are sort of trapped in this circle. And I think, right, if you can really move into a treatment mode and really get the narrative and find things to change, you can get out of this kind of everlasting circle. Now oh, that's helpful. And that sounds like um, another takeaway, I guess. What would be, how do you summarize this in one sentence or two, but your takeaway from all your experience in this work, you've worked with clinicians, you've worked with the people receiving services, survivors, folks who are left behind. Um, what would you say is your biggest takeaway from doing this and dedicating your career to this? I think it's that suicide is something that you can change. You know, I've treated a lot of other disorders that at their core are going to be around. You're going to have to manage them. You know, borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, to some extent, depression in in more um, chronic, repeating, recurring forms. You know, you can really get the symptoms down and, and like diabetes, you can get them sort of under control so you're not it's not dominating your day-to-day life experience, but it's kind of always there. And suicide is something I've seen people be able to just put down and walk away from. It's a different, and and I, I think the thing that's been hardest for me is watching these dynamics where suicide is sort of feels like it's become a chronic condition when it didn't need to be, when there are evidence-based practices designed to help somebody get treatment for this. And, and I, I think that this therapeutic alliance is so core to it because I think if we don't engage a suicidal person really effectively at what I think of as the first touch in that first moment, they're, they're kind of teetering. Do, is it, is it worth it to kill myself or not? Should I stay alive? You know, and, and they're reaching out for help and, I'm not saying that if they reject our help, they're necessarily going to kill themselves. Often they don't, but they also just don't come back. They're not feeling, they're feeling that we're in it for ourselves and covering our ass. They're not, we're not in it to, we don't, part of it is we're not in it, but also when you refer a patient to the emergency room or to the inpatient unit and that they're getting passed around, the message is this problem is too big for me. This problem is too big for you. This is an emergency. We need to do something immediately, but then we don't really have great solutions that roll off the inpatient unit the way we would following a heart attack, right? Yes, a heart attack. Let's get you to the ER. Let's get you into the hospital. And now we have a whole sort of cardiac rehab process that flows from that where a core issue that drove your heart to to have this attack has been resolved and now we're helping. That's not really how the ER and the inpatient unit work for suicidal folks. They don't have that um, experience unless maybe it's a medication issue that you maybe got, got addressed on the unit or maybe you were street homeless and the unit found you a place to live and that's really the core driver of your suicidality was you were getting victimized on the street. Yeah, I mean, there are some situations like that where where there's um, kind of an inpatient cure and then you just need follow-up. But what often happens is you're just getting passed around. The ER doesn't have much more to offer than, than the outpatient office. Inpatient doesn't have much more. To, so you, get, you have to tell your story again. You have to um, be vulnerable with all of these people. And there's not a thing that they're offering you. They just keep telling you, well, 
It's at the next stop that you'll be helped. We're going to send you a referral to an intake unit in a mental health center. And then you go to that clinic and you think that's when they're going to help. No, no, no. This is just an intake. We're going to be referring you to the person who's going to, and like, they just, it's just exhausting for them and trying to figure out how can we get treatment into that very first interaction? Maybe we didn't need all of that. So that is just not a great experience for anyone, you know, certainly the person who's actually in, in crisis. Uh, and, and I think the, the other pieces, you know, can we think about what it takes for you to feel like you can manage suicidal folks without having to refer. And we have a, our our center just submitted a grant with other folks um, from other centers around our department um, explicitly focused on kind of how can we bring human-centered design to understanding like what your options are as a primary care provider so that it would be easier for you to manage a suicidal patient. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Another person asks, I work for a crisis center and answer on contract several suicide prevention lines. It seems much of what we do, though, is on the suicide management. We're not licensed. We do have a lot of repeat callers that I could see this model being more applicable. How could this method of care translate to that kind of work where, you know, it's more of a hotline or a warm line or crisis line kind of work? Again, I really think if you have a a risk assessment process that you go through to determine what the risk factors are, you might try, you know, replacing that, maybe trying with a repeat caller where you already know a lot of that information might be a nice, safe place to start is to start by going through the narrative and just see what it's like to, and how much more, you know, buy-in you might be able to get to get them to then try some of the strategies that you're hoping that they'll they'll try rather than um, just relying on your voice as a way of kind of getting through the dark moments. Mm -hmm. You mentioned covering your ass and wanting to follow protocol, doing those safety steps. And at the same time, you're really emphasizing that the relationship, being able to have that narrative to be able to make a connection, shockingly, is what actually helps. So how can providers do both? You know, they're, they're, they have things they need to do. There's boxes that need checking and they themselves might be feeling very anxious or concerned, understandably. How can they manage all of that? How, how have you seen that that worked out well th- or best it can? <laughs> I think the best thing you can do is have, get the, the plan for how you're going to manage um, suicidality in your clinic on the table, uh, totally separate from any particular clinic situation, uh, clinical situation, you know, just ask that this become, this be something that whoever your executive work group thinks about, or make this part of staff meetings, have, have a sit down with, the um, with the kind of charge or the lead, you know, or the chief for your clinic and, and talk about it then. Because once somebody's at risk, it's, it's just the wrong time. You're not going to be able to, like, you, you're going to lose all degrees of freedom. But talking ahead of time, bringing these kind of ideas forward, asking, you know, is it possible that we can, uh, that I can reorder 
Um, the process of what I'm doing, is that an acceptable thing to do? Could we change our policies and procedures to accommodate something like that? Um, I think these are um, options that you could um, that you could consider and will work way better if you just schedule them and not wait till there's anybody at risk. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm also pleased that you said, and I, I don't know that you would frame it this way, but that a myth about suicide care is that it can't be changed, that you have to be stuck mm-hmm. in that revolving cycle. So I really appreciate that point. Well, thank you, Kate, so much for this important information. This has been so enlightening to talk about suicide care in a different way and learn some of these tools. I really hope folks take something from this and can use it in their work. Thank you so much. You can find resources related to the episode in our show notes, so be sure to check those out. Learn more about us by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. You can also follow us on social media at NWMHTTC. This broadcast is brought to you by the Northwest MHTTC, which is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. However, the content does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to connecting with you again so we can keep putting it together. Take care.